Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Connie Zweig to discuss her latest publication, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. Among many other topics, Connie discusses what it means to transform into an elder, the moral voice of the elder, earth elders and activism, and aging as a rite of passage. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel if that is where you view this. Also, hit that like button and notification bell. Your support is truly appreciated. Dr. Connie Zweig is a retired therapist, writer, climate reality leader, and citizens climate lobbyist. Known as the shadow expert, she is co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow, an author of Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, and a novel, A Moth to the Flame, The Life of Sufi Poet Rumi. Her new best-selling book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, extends her work on the shadow into midlife and beyond, and explores aging as a spiritual practice. It won both the 2021 American Book Fest Award and the 2021 Best Indie Book Award for Best Inspirational Nonfiction. Connie has been doing contemplative practices for more than 50 years. She is a wife, stepmother, and grandmother. After all these roles, she's practicing the shift from role to soul. Connie, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Well, it really is an honor to be able to speak with you today. Uh, As I told you before we began recording, I first came across your work, Meeting the Shadow, about 25 years ago. And it came into my life at a very important time. Uh, It's what I think some people would refer to as the Saturn return, uh, which is, you know, usually pretty painful. And for me, it was very painful, (laughs) but necessary for growth, I think. And it really helped give me some of the tools to become more of who I am. Beautiful. Uh, So so I'm very, very grateful for you. Beautiful. Uh, Thank you for telling me that. Oh, of course. Um, And, you know, I think that your new book is also coming into my life at the appropriate time. Uh, You know, I'll be 55 in a few months, and I've already had conversations with a few friends uh, about making this transition into the role of elder. Yes. And, you know, you write in your book, though, that the elder is not another role that it's a shift to a higher stage of awareness. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain what you mean by that. Yeah, you got right to the core of it, Nick. (laughs) So, um, you know, in our culture, we internalize ageism from a very young age. Television, movies, parents, grandparents, all believe and all kind of demonstrate or portray that young is good and old is bad, right? That that independent is good and dependent is bad, or strong is good and weak is bad, and doing is good and not doing is bad. And so we internalize these beliefs and these images about aging that lead to a lot of unconscious fear and dread about growing older. And at the same time, we don't have a rite of passage for crossing the threshold to become an elder, like the indigenous cultures had. And so what happens is we get our Medicare birthday card at 65, we become a senior. But a senior is not what I mean by an elder, a senior is chronological. An elder is a stage, not an age. And part of becoming an elder is recognizing what I call the inner ageist, that shadow character that has, that we've internalized with all of that ageism, that part of us that unconsciously um, feels badly, even hates growing older, hates the changes happening to the body, Retirement from paid work, 
um, other kind of emotional states that may be coming up with aging, illness and loss. And so part of becoming an elder is becoming conscious, breaking through denial of that inner ageist. Um, I mean, for example, I used to have clients when I was still doing clinical work um, who really felt self-hate when they went into their 60s and 70s. They did, their, their self-acceptance just dissolved and they began to feel incredibly negative feelings about their bodies or their minds. And so um, that is not an elder. I mean, an elder from my point of view has several qualities. Um, an elder is connected to the shadow, these unconscious feelings that I'm talking about, these parts of us that hold negative attitudes about aging. An elder is also connected to um, some kind of transcendental awareness, which could be, we could call it the higher self, Jung called it the self um, or soul or um, God within, whatever we call it, our essential spiritual nature. So an elder has some kind of a practice to experience that on a regular basis, to move beyond ego. And the third thing is an elder has mortality awareness. So if we're in denial of our mortality, then, you know, like my 89-year-old friend who said to me, I don't want to be with those old people. I'm not like them. So that is not elder awareness. An elder doesn't regret the past, um, isn't closed-minded and kind of locked in black and white thinking. An elder is more open, still learning, um, still exploring, and also doing some kind of spiritual work. So that is a different quality of awareness or stage of awareness than um, conventional ego awareness or what, we, what I call the heroic midlife ego awareness. It seems like the, our culture is not set up. Like you said, you know, we don't have a rite of passage in our culture to become an elder. And I think that American culture is still, we associate ourselves with youth. You know, I think we're still seeing as a young culture and youth is everything. And even among people, leaders who I would assume should be stepping into the role of elder, I still see a lot of childishness uh, that's coming out. And yeah. it makes me wonder uh, about the role models that we may have uh, for elders in our current culture? Well, that's a really good point, because if we have an elder who, if when we're children or teenagers, and we have an elder in our life who's modeling old age as thriving, um, healthy, um, compassionate, um, continuing to grow, that can be an antidote to the inner ageist. Because then the child or the teenager or the young adult can say, wow, look at my grandmother or look at that teacher or look at that counselor or look at that politician or clergy person. That doesn't look so bad, right? And so I was just talking to my 10-year-old grandson and telling him about how I published my sixth book and how meaningful it is to me to be talking to my readers now. And we sat and we did this little um, online program, how to make a book, and had a really good time. So he's having an experience that I didn't have. I didn't have a single positive image of an elder when I was his age. So that can be an antidote to it. But you're right, what we do see right now, we have a lot of politicians who are in their 80s. Um, we have more celebrities who are older now and getting parts in films. We have, but what we tend to see is people who are not so emotionally 
or even cognitively, definitely not spiritually well-developed. That's what we tend to see. And, you know, on the political scene, it's tragic. Mm -hmm. It's really, really tragic um, because it affects all of our lives. Um, but it's, it's also tragic in these other arenas because in a more subtle way, we're not getting the modeling that we need. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that this idea of ageism is so important. And also, the, I like that you are moving this away from chronological age. Um, you know, one of the classes I teach on a fairly regular basis is critical thinking. And there's always a section of the course that looks at language and definition. And we look at vagueness and ambiguity. And one of my examples is always middle-aged. So I ask my students, and most of the students are in their very early 20s, I'm like, okay, what is middle-aged? And it, it's always been interesting to get their response. Um, but one of the things I always tell them is that the older you get, the further away middle-age becomes. And you gave some numbers in your book in regards to when do you become old? And I see a similar pattern. So the millennial said, oh, it's 59. And then Gen X, that's my generation, we're like 65. Uh, and then for the boomers, it's like 73. And I think though that, is there a, I'm not sure I know how I wanna ask this question, but the, on a cultural level, when we think of old, in this question, when do you become old, couldn't we ask the same about when do you become an elder, even though it's not tied to chronological age? What would be some of the signposts, I suppose, of being an elder? Well, you know, I found that research that you're citing really interesting, which is age is in the age of the beholder. Hmm. each generation pushes it forward and that's happening that perception is happening in the context of this new longevity hmm. so we have never before had so much health span along with lifespan post-retirement until frail old age some of us will have as many days after retirement until death as we've had in earlier stages of life. This never ever happened before. So it's a new stage in the development of humanity. And I think it's important to conceive of it that way because that's one of the reasons we don't have definitions and critical thinking about it and rites of passage. So um, if we imagine what it is to be an elder, in the context of that, um, and we imagine that this stage of life has not only decline, you know, which has been the narrative about old age, we hit a certain age and then it's all downhill, but it also has potential for development, um, psychological development of our authenticity, of our um, personalities, of our creativity, and spiritual development um, into higher stages of awareness. And so if we begin to think about it that way, then we can begin to imagine that an elder, and elders are not perfect because elders are human beings like everybody else and they all have shadows. We right. all have shadows, right? right? So I'm not, you know, queen of the shadow here. I'm not Pollyanna about this. And I'm not saying that there's a stage of life in which we become perfect. I mean, for the listeners who have been around during the um, scandals of all of the spiritual teachers who were supposedly enlightened, we have to just recognize that every human being has the possibility of acting out a shadow right? But we also have the possibility in terms of becoming an elder 
of several several things here. And the book is set up so that it is a rite of passage. So as people begin to um, with chapter one and go through each of the themes of the book, there are practices at the end of every chapter. And as you begin to cultivate these practices, you begin to change your stage of awareness. So some examples, if we do a life review um, in our 60s or 70s or 80s, if we review the lives we've lived, the key moments, the key people, transitions, losses, traumas, breakthroughs, we begin to see where we need emotional repair. And if we begin to do that work of giving and receiving forgiveness, that work of communicating something that we may regret if we don't communicate it, then we move toward elderhood. I added to the traditional life review, the dimension of shadow. So what is the life we've been living in the unconscious? Jung called it the unlived life. And how can we reclaim from the unlived life something that we want to express now? That's part of becoming an elder. It might be a feeling that was repressed all our lives that we can now begin to kind of let out of the box. It might be a creative aspiration. So many of my friends and colleagues are writing and painting and doing all these things that they never had the time to do before, learning how to play an instrument. So that is part of becoming an elder. And then there's spiritual repair. So many people in my generation started meditating when we were quite young and uh, either stopped meditating or never changed their practice and never really explored, questioned it any further. So this is now the time to do spiritual repair. What do you really believe? What are your most prioritized values in this stage of life in order to prepare for death? What practices could you pick up now to prepare for later life? That's all part of becoming an elder and practicing mortality awareness, really acknowledging that the time horizon is shortened now. What is most important to me and what will I regret if I don't do it? you know, on my deathbed, what will I feel badly about? So an elder, each individual who really wants to make this transition, it looks at this in different ways because we all have our own needs and our own circumstances. Um, and some people will want to make a spiritual shift and some won't be interested in that. They'll be interested in emotional repair or creative work. So there's so much um, promise for this stage of life. And we can go into more detail about the spirituality if you want. But what I'm suggesting is that, and you know, another aspect of it, Nick, is activism. There are many elders now who are engaging in social activism in the pressing issues of our time in the climate crisis, in racism, gun violence, even the current war that we're experiencing now, through community. Um, Bill McKibben, who started 350.org, has just launched a new organization called The Third Act that's specifically for elders who want to engage in the climate crisis. Elders Action Network is a, a community a national community that has local chapters engaging in all kinds of social issues. But here's the key. An elder activist doesn't want to engage in the same way as a midlife activist or a teenage activist. We want to bring our elder stage of awareness into our activism today. What does that mean? We have more psychological awareness. 
of what blocks us from getting things done. We have more systemic awareness of our society and how it works and what blocks us from getting things done. We may come more from compassion than from anger as so many of us did in the old days. I was at Berkeley in the late 60s and I think a lot of my activism I understand now was fueled by my family issues. So I don't wanna be reactive in the same way as an elder. I wanna engage differently now with this new quality of awareness. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the um, social activism and in particular, the environmental crises that we are in right now. Um, because at one point you wrote that the call to be an elder is a call to be an earth elder. And I really appreciated that because I, and it seems to me that what we are experiencing right now, the state of the environment, I always view that in terms of the shadow that what we're seeing outside is a reflection of what's inside. And it tells me that we, as a culture, have a lot of shadow work to do. And so that's another reason why I find your work so valuable. And I'm happy to see people becoming more involved uh, as they age. And we need that. You know, one of the things that came to mind as you were speaking, and I, I was reflecting on this because I was reflecting on media representation of elders, right? And my favorite movie that I've seen probably close to a hundred times is Harold and Maude. And I remember Maude saying something in terms of activism, which is, you know, I no longer need the defenses. Now I embrace. And, and I understand that the movie's problematic. This is also something that came to me. It's like, yeah, and she commits suicide because she, she doesn't want to be any older than 80. Um, but nevertheless, I, I, I wanted to bring that up in terms of the activism and embrace. And as you said, acting out of compassion. Um, and I would hope acting out of a place of examining life. Yeah, you know, to really, really simplify my books on the shadow, my work, my career on the shadow, we could say it's been investigating denial. Mm. What is human denial about? What is that particular psychological defense mm. really about? And the root of the climate crisis is denial. Right because humanity has known about this for decades now. And, um, and done nothing or done very little. So there is a international community of psychologists now called uh, Climate Psychology Alliance, CPA. Um, who are trying to create curriculum to teach clinicians, people who work in therapy, how to work with those clients who are suffering from climate anxiety and despair. Mm -hmm. Because this is starting to show up in the therapy room now. Younger generations feel so much despair and anger and um, moral outrage so beautifully articulated by Greta Thunberg, you know. And so there are lots of communities organizing around this issue now, um, but it's very frightening. And it's probably too little too late to prevent a certain amount of chaos that we're gonna face. Right. So, in some way, becoming an elder is becoming an earth elder in the sense of um, let's not be in denial anymore. But it may not be the call that everyone hears for engagement. Some people may hear a different call to a different cause 
you know, some people may focus, like my husband is really focused on spirituality. And he is a, a spiritual elder, I would call him. And that is his path. And so other people are focused on um, creativity. Like we could look at, um, there's a fabulous book called The Creative Age by Gene Cohen, which really, um, I wrote about it in my book because he looked at the development of creativity through the lifespan and showed statistically how many people are creative elders, how many people either begin or continue their creativity very far into their late life. And so that is a different call. And whether they're composers or architects or painters or novelists, that's a different call. Um, and so not everyone is going to become an earth elder, but I think in terms of our awareness now, we don't want to be in denial of the, you know, critical danger in which we live. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Greta Thunberg because I was reflecting on her um, while reading your book. And I think this is maybe, you know, Jungian terminology, but I was thinking, well, she is, she is like an elder um, in the sense that she has this responsibility and this gravitas perhaps in facing these things. And then I thought, well, it's the combination of opposites. You know, she's the Senex pure. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that, but she's the combination of the elder and the youth. Yeah, I would say more she's a young person with an old soul. Okay. I don't know that she's an elder because she doesn't have the life experience. Right, yeah. But she's really um, speaking. She's become a voice for, a moral voice for humanity. And this is what we need from elders. Mm -hmm. We need the moral voice of the elder. Right. And in conjunction with the youth. So there's a lot of intergenerational work going on now. Mm -hmm. with the youth climate movements and the elder climate movements. And, um, you know, there, there's always been mentoring and co-generational work, but it's really focusing on climate now. And so for people who are interested in that, it's, it's not hard to find. Right. Yeah, I, I see that as well. Uh, the, you know, I come out of the California Institute of Integral Studies, and, you know, one of our, uh, I don't think she was ever a full faculty member, but uh, one of our elders is Joanna Macy. Yes. And I know that I have classmates who work with her and I see, you know, as the one generation is moving out, you know, and they're facing their mortality, you know, we've got this other generation that's coming in. And this idea of dialogue uh, between the generations, I think, is so important. And yeah, Joanne is in her 80s now. Yeah. Yeah. But she really um, left a beautiful legacy mm -hmm. of people who are trained in her work and her books and her recorded talks, some of which are really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so young people are picking up the, the work that connects. That's her work, mm -hmm. the work that right. reconnects, yeah. Right. Yeah, so this idea of legacy is really a question that we wanna pose ourselves, you know. What is, what is the gift that only I can give? Mm -hmm. And what will happen if I don't contribute that? How will I feel at the end if I don't contribute that? And that's really what drove me to write this book, Nick, because I wasn't really thinking about writing another book. Mm. Um, but I entered my late 60s, I started to feel disoriented, um, contemplating retirement. And it surprised me that I felt that way because I've done so much shadow work and I've done so much meditation. I didn't anticipate feeling that way. And then I found Saging International, which is a wonderful elder community, and went through their year-long training to become a sage. 
and really enjoyed it, but also found it was missing the unconscious, my, my expertise, right? It was not inclusive of the shadow and depth psychology. And so that's when I knew I needed to write another book. There was nothing out there that included what's going on in the unconscious about aging as we go through these stages of life. And um, once we learn with shadow work how to connect with those unconscious parts, then we can change them. Mm. And we can shape a different experience for ourselves of old age. And that's what happened to me. I mean, once I discovered my own inner ageist in the beginning of writing this book, it was a big shift. It was a really big shift. And um, then I started to explore and interview hundreds of people. And then I interviewed a lot of spiritual teachers. Ken Wilber, Father Thomas Keating, just before he died, Krishna Das, Anna Douglas, Buddhist teacher, Roshi Wendy Nakao, Roger Walsh, um, Lionel Corbett, Jungian analyst, James Hollis, Jungian analyst. Um, and I began to get a sense of how they were working with their own aging issues. And these interviews were really inspiring to me in terms of what you and I were talking about, the missing elders. Because for me, each of these people is a spiritual elder. And each of them has practices. Rabbi Rami Shapiro described the practices that he does every single day as he's moving through this stage of life. And, um, and then I had this memory um, from decades ago of something that Ramdas had said. The spiritual teacher Ramdas spoke about the shift from role to soul. And I realized that was the frame for my book. That that shift from role or identification with what we do to soul or who we really are, our spiritual essence, is really the hidden stage. It's the hidden uh, level of consciousness in later life. And all of the spiritual traditions talk about this. Every one of them, whether they're monastic or not, talks about spiritual development as the purpose of later life. Right. So I borrowed Ram Dass's frame for the subtitle of the book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. And it seems that that's what's catching people. It's just intuitively recognizable. Oh my God, that's what I'm looking for. I want to shift from what I do to who I really am. And that's becoming a spiritual elder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that you mentioned in the book um, the uh, Hindu ashramana system, which has the four stages of life. And the final stage is to devote yourself to spiritual practice. Uh, and I also, and I never thought about it this way. Uh, but the story of the Buddha, that he encounters illness, old age, and death. And that is what led to his awakening. Yes. And I can even tell you how many times I've told the story of the, 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 you know, Siddhartha becoming the Buddha. And it never quite clicked in the sense of, oh, yeah, you know, this has <laughs> something to do with a developmental part of life. That's right. Yeah. He was sheltered in the castle before he saw aging, illness, and death. Mm -hmm. And he was so shocked. And then he saw a monk. And, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, they call these divine messengers. Mm -hmm. And I'm adding retirement is a divine messenger. All these other transitions that we go through now, we can put them in the same frame. Any of them can be a wake-up call to begin to make these changes. Any of these transitions post-midlife. Mm -hmm. Loss can be a divine messenger. Um, a brush with mortality can be a divine messenger. 
And so, yeah, um, you know, India and the ashramas, we, the, the traditional Indian world taught that first we're students and then we're householders and then we're grandparents where we begin to let go a little bit and then we're sannyasi monks where we leave the material world we leave the family and uh, we retreat into contemplative practice but that's a monastic model mm -hmm. and today we can create a natural monastery inside of ourselves because all every practice from every tradition is available now so you know, if you're a Christian, you can look into mystical Christianity and find practices. If you're Jewish, you can look into mystical Judaism and find practices. Or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist, you know, so many people are doing mindfulness retreats now. And so you can look for what really resonates with you and find practices that fit this stage of life for you. You don't have to go to the cave. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people want to like Father Thomas Keating, but other people are not monks and or nuns. And so today we have this privilege of all these perennial practices being available to us. It's quite incredible. There are many spiritual elders that we can learn from. Uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking uh, Matthew Fox, for example, yes. and creation, spirituality. And, uh, you know, we already mentioned Joanna Macy, but uh, these are really important voices. And I think it also fits in our cultural moment as we see more and more people leaving traditional religions and focusing more on spirituality. You know? Yeah, and it's happening in every denomination. Yeah, you know, it's happening in every denomination. I think that um, and it's not easy for a lot of people to make that transition, right? you know, to begin to see the shadow side of their beliefs mm -hmm. or of their congregation or of their pastor or of their rabbi. It's not easy. It's a painful process yeah. of disillusionment. Sure. But what I'm suggesting is that all of these traditional religions also have their esoteric or mystical streams that are based on personal experience, internal experience, rather than beliefs. And, you know, I wrote the inner work of age to really be independent of belief. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be, you don't have to believe in life after death, you don't have to believe in Christianity or Judaism, you don't have to believe it's really psychology. And it's about exploring your own inner world to uncover your own values and beliefs and the practices that are right for you. Right. And, you know, one of the things that came to mind as well while reading, you know, you, you quoted James Hollis, who you've mentioned that uh, and this is in regards to awareness of death, where he said that an awareness of death is part of an examined life. And I see all of this as a continuum of living an examined life. And I think that there may be people who see the title of the book, Oh, the Inner Work of Age, and are like, Oh, well, I don't need that yet. And I think it's for everybody. You know, these are things that we, should be thinking about and examining throughout our entire lives. Well, it's funny. I, I wasn't thinking about that when I was writing, but a 30 year old friend of mine just read the book and he said it completely changed mm. the way he's going to go through the lifespan Yeah, because he saw his own aging process so differently. Yeah. So that's very gratifying to me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I like this practice I think that some people would think it's morbid, but I see that as the shadow. I mean, aging and death is the shadow, <laughs> you know, um, but this practice of being aware of your death, this mortality awareness, you know, I was um, thinking about, uh, I, I know he's a little bit problematic, but Carlos Castaneda's book, Journey to Ixlon, 
where he, one of the teachings of Don Juan is to know that your death is your constant companion. Yeah. And it can happen at any moment. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, um, 50 years of meditation practice, what happens now is with each breath, I'm practicing mortality awareness. I'm aware that this exhalation could be my last. And this one could be my last. And that, rather than being morbid, actually, has enlivened me to live more fully present now and to be really aware of the opportunity of this moment rather than get lost in distraction, think I have all the time in the world, you know, and be unavailable to the potentiality of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It resonates quite a bit because, you know, I've been kind of aware of my mortality for a very long time, but I think that there's a difference between a sort of intellectual, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to die at some point versus this thinking of it could happen at any moment. And I think that when you do have that kind of awareness, you do live in presence now. And I think you even refer to it as that, as a portal to living fully here. Yeah, that's one of the promises of mortality awareness. You know, that's really, it opens up um, the moment and in an alchemical way mm. with a kind of urgency that isn't there if, like I have a friend who said to me, you know, I'm 65, I have plenty of time, I don't have to think about this. And I didn't push her, but I thought to myself, 65 and no awareness that of how long she's lived compared to how much time she has left, right? And so there's a certain denial that's kind of baked into that. And um, that's a defense. And that's why I didn't push on it because, you know, we want to respect each other's defenses. Right. We all need them. And she's missing out right. on something precious. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for our listeners who might be thinking, I don't believe this, there's life after death, I'm going to have lots of lifetimes. Whatever we believe, metaphysically, my conniness will pass. This individuality, this body, this conniness, it will pass. Whether I'm reborn or not as a soul is another issue. And so that's really what I'm talking about. This body, mind, and its gifts and contributions, and you know the wisdom that's been gathered over 73 years of life experience, what can I offer to the common good today? What can I offer to my grandkids? What can I offer to the urgent crises that we're facing? You know, what can I offer to my communities? Yeah, if we don't hold mortality awareness, we're not going to be asking those questions. Right. Yeah. And it seems like you're not going to live a fully examined life. And I, I like what you just said, because what came to mind was that it's almost like aging as ceremony. Ah, it's like aging as ceremony. Yeah. And that's similar to rite of passage, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. there's, a, there's a, a kind of a built-in ceremonial moment-to-moment-to-moment -to -moment -to -moment quality of elder awareness. Mm -hmm. And I wrote in the book about a particular ceremony for my retirement from clinical practice where I created this rite, and I had never done it before, but I wanted to uh, really experience the three steps of a rite of passage, letting go of the past, stepping into the unknown, 
and emerging renewed. And so I created a ceremony for retirement to be able to do that, letting go of my clients, letting go of my books, my readers, really stepping into the unknown, not knowing what was next, and then stepping across this threshold that I had made on the floor, um, empty-handed. And so that, and that was before I wrote this book. I didn't know this book was going to appear as a task for me to do. Um, but it freed me. That ceremony really freed me um, from the grief and the disorientation and the um, uncertainty of that passage. You know, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, this is so much of this is inner individual work. And there is this collective aspect um, in terms of uh, social engagement. But I also want to kind of bring it into conversation with aging parents and relatives, because this is such a difficult discussion that I think is a necessary discussion. And it seems to me that the avoidance of having the discussion is also that's shadow material uh, in a sense. And, you know, that's one of my deep regrets is never having this conversation with my parents uh, before they passed away, uh. you know, um, but my, you know, my, my mother avoided her age <laughs> yeah. and it actually cost her her life. Uh, anyways, by lying constantly about her age, uh, you know, um, yeah. but there was a moment where she was in a, uh, uh, uh it wasn't a, a home. She was for, uh, rehabilitation after surgery. And it was one of the last conversations that we had where my brother's, one of my brother's dogs died. And no one wanted to tell her because they didn't want to upset her, but she found out. And then she just like, she goes, oh, I'm going to be next. And the regret is not having the courage to engage in that conversation and say, well, okay, what if this happens to you next? And instead it was like, oh, don't worry, mom, you'll be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And so I'm curious if you have any suggestions or thoughts on how people can, and this is again, intergenerational communication, but have these sorts of conversations. Well, so it was, you know, talk about intergenerational. That was an, your response was part of an intergenerational shadow. Yeah. Right. It was the family pattern of kind of dismissing and smoothing it over yeah. rather than opening it up and exploring it. Right. And that's okay mm. because it was automatic for you. You learned yeah. that as a kid and it would have been, it would have taken a lot of consciousness for you to do that differently at that moment. Um, so let me, let me respond on a couple different levels. One, for you, because I'm hearing regret, Nick, mm. what I would suggest is that you might, and this is for anyone listening who might have lost a parent in a similar situation, you might write a letter to that parent and say the things that you left unsaid or act them out in a role play where you have two chairs and you take two sides and your mom's in the other chair. It may sound silly, but it actually can be a profound release for your psyche to take it outside of your mind and express it in writing or verbally so that it's lived out in a way that it wasn't lived out in those moments. And you might be surprised at what the other person says. You know, you can kind of channel your mom and see what comes up. Um, you could do it as, I, what I did after my mother died is I did a series of letters with her um, and it really helped me through it. 
Um, in the larger sense of um, aging and dying family members, we just lost someone in our family last week who also lived in denial. Um, she died of colon cancer, which is completely unnecessary today. If you have a colonoscopy, that's not gonna happen. And she just never went to the doctor and didn't get herself checked out. And, um, and so there was a loss for everyone and also a recognition that of her adult children that they don't wanna live that way now because they saw the result of that. So in terms of the communication, there's a big chapter on illness in the book. And part of the one section in it is about caregiving. And it model, it, it, it kind of explores and demonstrates communication um, that's kind of sophisticated, maybe a little bit over the head for some people's families, but it, it, it offers a possibility of how to experience illness and caregiving as spiritual practice mm. in the sense that you learn how to attune to yourself and what's going on in your shadow. You learn how to communicate, you know, to be related with kindness and with um, without what happened for you, you know, without automatic default responses. And you learn how to kind of give and receive um, so that one person doesn't feel a victim and the other person, the rescuer, the fixer, because that's really important in these situations mm -hmm. so that both people stay honest and vulnerable and see themselves in the other. So um, that's kind of the root of it. There is a, a spiritual context for that which is, um, and you know, some listeners might be interested in this and some may not, which is the practice that I am not the body. Mm. And so if I am ill, um, I'm not the body, that's not my true nature. And just like in the retirement chapter, I am not the doer, that's not my true nature. And so there are practices throughout the book to deepen our identity into our spiritual essence, rather than getting stuck in these kind of more um, relative identities. Another point that you brought up throughout the book is that our thoughts about aging and illness affect how we age and how I think we respond to illness. And I think that's really important to keep in mind for people uh, going through their lives. Well, that circles us back to the beginning. Right. So it turns out that there's a lot of research now that shows that our unconscious feelings and beliefs and attitudes about old age and illness and retirement shape how we experience it. That's what made me write the book when I found that research because mm -hmm. it was so mind-blowing to me. It actually, our unconscious fears and images and associations with old age affect our longevity, affect our memory, affect our cardiac health. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. And so if we can uncover what those are, then we can reshape how we are going to experience this stage of life. And that's just radical. Yeah, it does my heart good to see people being very active. I, my partner and I have talked about this and it, it's odd, but that people of a certain age now, they seem younger than what they did when we were young. And, you know, I guess the example I have for this is uh, I hike every week and I go to a canyon by JPL and 
there are a lot of, uh, I guess why I would refer to as seniors. And there's one woman in particular that I see every time I'm out there and she's got to be probably in her eighties. And I just love seeing her there because she's out there in her hiking gear with her poles and, you know, big old smile. And when I was a kid, I would never run across anything like that. People just seemed older and maybe it was a aspect of just being young. Um, but I also think it is something in terms of the generations. Well, this is because um, the health span is catching up to the lifespan, right? right? So what does that mean? It means that there's so much information available now about how to stay healthy, about nutrition and exercise and the brain and inflammation. And people have taken up lifestyles that have allowed them, us, to maintain that rather than the rise and the peak and decline, mm. to maintain this horizon through these decades as healthy and fit, not necessarily perfect. Most many people have a pain here or some kind of a problem there, you know. But what's happening is this health span is going along and then people die more quickly rather than experience a long, slow decline. Mm. And so we see people now in their 80s and 90s, even hundreds, who are fairly fit, fairly well, able to function. And I don't know that that's, I think in other generations, it was rare, it happened, but it was right. rare. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I, I was raised by my grandparents, but they both died when they were very young. Oh. Um, I am the same age now that my grandmother was ah. and she passed away. And my grandfather was, I think, 61. And I think that contributed to my feeling of death always being, you know, right there, because I know that it can happen at any time. So that's an important age for you. The age at which yeah. our parents die yeah. is an important age psychologically for us in the sense that we feel like we're outliving them. Mm -hmm. And some people feel guilt about that. Some people feel pride about that. Mm -hmm. Just check in with yourself if that's your situation because um, there's stuff going on in the shadow about that. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and shadow work is a lifelong endeavor. Yeah. You know, it, it's not something that you're like, okay, I'm fixed now and I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's a lifelong thing. And that's what I appreciate uh, about your work um, is the acknowledgement of that. And um, I, I, I think that working with the shadow is so important. And it, I feel like there is this movement I hear quite a bit of people saying no 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 work with the light work with the light work with the light and my response is always every light creates shadow you know you can't just focus on the light you can't just be a light worker you have to be a shadow worker too we have to hold the opposites yeah yeah, yeah for sure so I know that we're getting close to the end of our time I did want to ask you one final question and this is something that was again, uh, something that um, I hadn't really thought about before. Um, and I'm going to start incorporating it into my classes. Uh, I teach uh, Near Eastern religions a lot. So I yeah. teach, you know, the Bible and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I teach Exodus uh, and the story of Moses. And you end the book with talking about the promised land. And I'm always looking at ways to approach the material from a symbolic level. And it really resonated with me because it is the fact that we are all going to have some kind of unfinished business, isn't it? Yeah. I, you know, somehow while I was writing, this question was sitting in the background for me. Um, what is the promised land? Mm. What is a fulfilled life? Which is a little different than what is an examined life, right? right, right. What is a fulfilled or a complete life? And, um, you know, that story of Moses 
every chapter in the book opens with a parable and all of the different spiritual traditions are represented. Hmm. And this one about Moses for me was about, he did all this tremendous work for his people, right? He received the Torah and he led them into Canaan and he was not allowed to join them in the promised land. And so I'm asking the readers the question, how do you see that? What do you project onto that? What does that mean to you? Hmm. What is your promised land? What is stopping you from entering? And is there ever a life that is finished? Right? Is there ever a life in which all the all of our, like you just said, shadow work is a lifelong, maybe a many lifetime project, mm. right? And so is there such a thing as a finished life, a fully examined life, we could say. And so I pose a lot of questions there and um, present answers from some of the people I interviewed. And, you know, um, for me, um, having lived most of my life in the world of spiritual practice, um, my two lineages are depth psychology and Vedanta. And so in the world of, of Vedanta, you know, there is this teaching of awakening and higher levels of consciousness. And, um, and for many people I know, that remains just out of reach. That promised land is something people can sense or experience temporarily and not somehow grasp. But for other people, the promised land is, you know, seeing their grandkids grow up on a sustainable planet. Mm. For other people, it's, making a creative contribution that's lasting. So it's a very different, it's a, it's a beautiful contemplation, I think, and it's very individual. Yeah, it, it also um, brought to mind the connection between the 40 years of wandering through the desert with, that's our work lives. <laughs> yes, that's you right, know. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, I know that we are uh, out of time, and um, I have so thoroughly appreciated and enjoyed this conversation, Connie. Um, Me too. I have two final questions for you. Uh, one is, what are you working on next? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's see, a couple things. This book has, um, you know, arrived at the time when life was on Zoom. Mm. And as a result of that, I've been able to meet thousands of readers I wouldn't have been able to meet otherwise. And so I've been teaching online and I'm going to continue to do that. And so for people who are interested in my workshops, you can go to ConnieZwag.com and they're all listed there with the links and you can join me online. For other people who are reading the book and are interested in aging in community, um, we've formed about probably 30, 35 wisdom circles now of people who are meeting online and going through the book together and doing the practices together and forming beautiful friendships and feeling less isolated and aging in community. So if that's of interest to you, um, you can shoot me an email, ConnieZwag at gmail.com. Put wisdom circle in the subject line so that I know that that's why you're reaching out. Please don't send me a long story um, uh, in the email, but I'm giving out my email for this purpose if you want to join a circle. So those are um, some of what I'm working on now. Um, and next year, um, we're going to reissue one of my books that's out of print, Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality. So I'm okay. working on revising that book and it'll be out next year. 
Good. I was looking for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd love to read that. Um, Cause that's a whole other topic of the it's shadow side of spirituality. Right. Uh, and it's a desperately needed conversation, I think. Yeah. Um, so, and the, the final question was where people can find you, but you already gave your website. So I won't repeat that question. Yeah. I'm on Facebook at Dr. Connie Zweig. I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, so I'm available if people want to connect. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much. It was truly uh, an honor to be able to speak with you. And I am so grateful. So very grateful. Thank you for having me, Nick. Much All love. Right. Okay, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 37 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a short but positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly as much as possible and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes my work and this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit. <laughs>